Hello and welcome to ClassicalPodcast.com. I'm Lou Smoley, and it's been our great pleasure to offer you our diverse programs of classical music, which include commentary, panel discussions, and interviews, all free of charge for more than five years. We are delighted with the huge response to our programs and are proud of the fact that ClassicalPodcast.com is the most listened to website of its kind in the world. If you've enjoyed our programs and would like to have them continue as a free service, please consider supporting the website by making a contribution. Donations are made through PayPal on our website homepage, classicalpodcasts.com. We encourage you to make a monthly contribution if you can. All revenues from our donations will be used to defray the expenses of the website. Classicalpodcast.com, Inc. is a nonprofit organization, and all donations are tax-deductible under applicable U.S. tax laws. We thank you for listening to our programs, hope you continue to do so, and for your generous support of ClassicalPodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Buried Treasure. I'm Lou Smoley, and with this being the third part of our series devoted to music based on great works of literature, we'll conclude the series and open the program with uh, a work by the great dramatist Anton Chekhov, is The Seagull. The work was written in 1895 and dramatizes the romantic and artistic conflicts between four characters, the famous middle-brow story writer Boris Trigorin, the ingenue Nina, a fading actress Irina Arkadina, and her son, the symbolist playwright Konstantin Treplev. Characters tend to speak in ways that skirt around issues rather than addressing them directly. In other words, their lines are full of what is known in dramatic practice as subtext, that is, text that is not actually spoken aloud, but implicit uh, in what is spoken, and in the characters themselves. The score is a ballet uh, by Rodion Shedrin, the Russian composer. Uh, it consists of 24 preludes and a postlude. Uh, they carry an air of premonition and introduction, combined with a spirit of expectation. Shedrin reconfigured the play's four acts into two, and it is the second of these two acts that we will hear. The Bolshoi Theatre Orchestra is directed by Alexander Lazarev.
That was the second act of a ballet based on Chekhov's The Seagull, written by Rodion Shadrin. It was performed by the Bolshoi Theater Orchestra, directed by Alexander Lazarev. For our next work on a literary subject, we'll return to the music of French composer Marius Constant, whose symphonic suite on Cyrano de Bergerac we played in the first program in this series. This time, the work of Constant that we will hear uh, is uh, based upon a great novel by his compatriot Émile Zola, his most famous novel, Nana. Constant sought to evoke the aura of the period during which the story takes place by incorporating music from a composer whose works flourished at the time, in this case, Wagner. So if you hear hints of Wagnerian themes, they appear with dramatic intent. The Nana Symphony consists of five movements. They are titled The Meeting, which attempts to describe the confrontation of two worlds which everything separates, the world of the Imperial Chamberlain and the superb creature, the daughter of a laundress and a drunken father, Nana. The second movement describes the stock exchange, whereas the composer suggests everything is done and undone. The third is a pas de deux, the sole moment of innocence and purity. The fourth, a quadrille, period dances with a long violin solo, kind of in the style of a square dance. And the fifth movement, entitled To Berlin, leaving for the war front we hear the shouts of the crowd in the Paris streets after a confrontation between the French and German drum signals and an air from a street song, a Kaiser march is heard. Constant realized that the Kaiser march had been taken over by the Nazis. The work ends as the wind rises and carries everything with it. Musically, the Nana Symphony often projects a mystic aura as well as wild chaos, contrasted with pointillistic, sparsely polyphonic passages and an eleatoric quality, uh, which is somewhat akin to that of burial. We hear the Berlin Radio Symphony conducted by the composer in his Nana Symphony, based on the novel by Emile Zola.
We just heard a Nana symphony after the novel by Emile Zola, the composer Marius Constant, the performers, the Berlin Radio Symphony, uh, which the composer directed. The last two offerings in our series on music based on literary works deal with more contemporary literature. The German novelist Hermann Hesse's greatest novel, The Glass Bead Game, won a Nobel Prize in 1946. It contains the height and depth of Hesse's life philosophy. The novel is also known as Magister Ludi, the master of the game. The ideal world of the novel is called Castalia, a closed society in which scholars spend their waking hours devoted to the development of the mind, seeking mental perfection. The game of the title is a highly difficult exercise in which the most elite develop their abilities by constructing and solving ingenious musical and mathematical complexities. By the means of this game, the players are transformed, achieving a trance-like state of self-fulfillment. Curiously, the game only uses existing knowledge, fugues by Bach, fragments of Leibniz, Gabrielli sonatas. Nothing new is created. Perfection is generated by a complete absorption and exhaustive analysis of past accomplishments. For Hesse, such a society must stagnate and eventually die out. This is also the theme of Claude Baker's work, which bears the same title as Hesse's novel. Here, Baker utilizes Hesse's methods and imagery by which to comment upon the artistic and social values of the 20th century. A period of art for art's sake, trendiness, in which scraps function as substance and end in themselves. Culture seems to have been reduced to irrelevancies. The work consists of three movements, and they have subtitles. First, the age of the Fuiton, the beginnings of Castalia. Second, the League of Journeyers to the East. And the third, the Glass Bead Game, which the composer marks as a fantasia. The first movement uses a four-part canon organized serially and played by 24 solo strings. Baker intended this canonic element to expose the limitations of serialism as well as serve as an expression of the intense occupation of the age of the Fouiton with numerological principles. At the end of this section, Baker introduces the music of decline with violent outbursts that signal the end of the age of the Fouiton. In the second movement, Castalia, the ideal world of the mind has been established, created by a group of zealots that form the League of Journeyers to the East. Here, Baker uses a form called a padwana, a slow, courtly dance, somewhat like a pavan, and in this case, written by the early 17th century German composer Johann Schein. He alternates with atonal music, making the earlier work sound like a dream. The journeyers seek to assimilate, reassemble, and reproduce knowledge that already exists, so as to express and establish 
interrelationships between content and conclusions of early scholarly disciplines. In the final movement, The Glass Bead Game, Baker combines music of six composers in a collage, the Variations for Orchestra by Luigi Dalla Piccola, Schoenberg's Variations for Orchestra, Vaughan Williams' Fourth Symphony, Shostakovich's Tenth Symphony, Pendereski's The Passion According to St. Luke, and the Fantasy and Fugue on themes by Bach, written by Franz Liszt. It's quite a combination. Portions of the first five of these works relate to the famous four notes that form one of the subjects of the final unfinished fugue in Bach's Art of the Fugue, which spells out Bach's name in musical terms. Through this fascinating look at the past, both Hesse and Baker warn us that a society that does not create is doomed to decline. And so let's listen to this fascinating work The Glass Bead Game, after the novel by Hermann Hesse, music by Claude Baker. It's performed by the St. Louis Symphony, directed by Leonard Slatkin.
A Glass Bead Game by Claude Baker, after the novel by Hermann Hesse. English composer John McCabe was also a highly accomplished pianist, but his wide range of compositions show the talents of a highly gifted and thoughtful creator. His death last year was a great loss to the world of music. Of McCabe's five symphonies, the fourth, from 1993 to 94, is the first one that he wrote specifically on a work of literature, Thomas Wolfe's Of Time and the River. And those of you who have not read it, I highly recommend it. The music opens in the sound world of Benjamin Britten, but soon develops into a particularly individual style. The symphony is in cyclical form, charting a course from a positive, swift-moving opening in the first movement to a rather bleak, static state reached at the end of the first movement. The second movement begins slowly, in almost complete inertia, and gradually increases in tempo, returning to the fast-moving opening of the symphony. A desolate but brief coda ends the work, although the connection between McCabe's symphony and the Wolf novel is not direct. There is a certain conceptual connection. For example, in one instance, the merger of two distinct paces connects with Wolf's train in the novel as a symbol of how time functions on different levels. As the composer suggests, who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? We hear the BBC Symphony directed by Vernon Handley in John McCabe's Symphony Number no. 4 of Time in the River, based on the novel by Thomas Wolfe.
The Symphony Number no. 4 by John McCabe of Time and the River, based upon uh, the magnificent Thomas Wolfe novel of the same name. And here it was performed by the BBC Symphony, directed by Vernon Handley. It may be appropriate that we end not only this program, but the series with this next work, uh, which is a, a cantata based on what many feel is the greatest work of literature in the 20th century, Ulysses by James Joyce. In this case, the work, the classical work, uh, was written by the Hungarian composer Matthias Seber. He studied in the Budapest Music Academy with Kodai, 
and was originally fascinated with medieval plain chant, uh, especially by reason of the splendid research done in his early years by Kodai, his teacher, and Bartok. The result were several Hungarian folk songs by Saber. In 1927, he left Hungary and started lecturing in Frankfurt with a reference from Kodai. There, he inaugurated the first academic study of jazz in the country. In the early 1930s, the Nazi disapproval of jazz, as well as Jews, of which he was one, necessitated Saber's emigration uh, to London in the mid-30s. Uh, he taught musical appreciation at Morley College at the invitation of Michael Tippett. Saber is also renowned for his teaching of composition. Uh, in fact, he attracted pupils from all over Europe, including Hugh Wood, Peter Racine Fricker, who regarded him as his foremost teacher, Ingvar Lidholm, Hinner Bausch, and from Australia, Don Banks. Saber's works were performed at Cheltenham, at Venice, and other national and international music festivals. He was a founding member of the Society for the Promotion of New Music and actively pursued this throughout his life. A terrible tragedy occurred in 1960 uh, when the composer was killed in a car accident in South Africa while on a lecture tour. Kodai and Ligeti both composed pieces in memoriam to Sieber. He had a deep commitment to works by James Joyce. Not only did he write two cantatas on Joyce's works, Ulysses and Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, but also an elegy for viola and orchestra. In a sense, Sieber's musical construction parallels Joyce's systematic approach to literature. When it came to devoting a work to Joyce's Ulysses, not, of course, an easy task, the composer chose the chapter called Ithaca, and from it, a magic moment when Stephen Dedalus and his guest talk, take a walk in the darkened garden and see the heavens above them. In the cantata, the tenor role is one of questioner, answered by the chorus. A three-note motive pervades the entire work. The first of its five movements is entitled The Heaven Tree. The second movement, Meditations of Evolution Increasingly Vaster. This contains an enormous passacaglia that mirrors the enormity of the universe. The third movement, Obverse Meditations of Involution, conjures up the little world of the microbe in a flickering, impulsive scherzo. The nocturne intermezzo that follows is a meditation on darkness. Its middle section seems to evoke the tiny creatures of the scherzo in a rather different perspective. The final movement, epilogue, brings back the original three-note motive in the violin, now played in inverted form. The chorus this time acts as questioner in spoken voice, in which they assert that the heaven tree of the first movement is really nothing but a utopia. To the tenor's response, the music gradually dissipates and dissolves. Stylistically, the music here is relatively simple, even if discords and, not to mention semitones, do occur. 
Seber shows himself a master of instrumentation with interesting instrumental combinations, such as the conjunction of xylophone, piccolo, and sul ponticello double basses in the nocturne movement. In this recording, we hear Alexander Young, tenor with the BBC Chorus, the London Symphony, all directed by David Atherton.
And so, with the work Ulysses, a cantata for tenor, solo, chorus, and orchestra by Matthias Seber, uh, we bring our series on music written to great works of literature to a close. Uh, our next series of programs, uh, we will feature the music of the English composer of the 20th century, very much in need of a larger audience, Havergale Bryan. Until then, this has been Lou Smoley, wishing you, as always, great adventures in discovering the buried treasures of classical music. And please don't forget to make a contribution to the website to keep it a free service. Just go to our homepage at classicalpodcasts.com where you can donate any amount through PayPal.